This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Democracy in America, Volume 1, by Alexis de Tocqueville, translated by Henry Reeve, Chapter 18, The Future Condition of Three Races in the United States, Part 1. The present and probable future condition of the three races which inhabit the territory of the United States. The principal part of the task which I had imposed upon myself is now performed. I have shown as far as I was able the laws and the manners of the American democracy. Here I might stop, but the reader would perhaps feel that I had not satisfied his expectations. The absolute supremacy of democracy is not all that we meet with in America. The inhabitants of the New World may be considered from more than one point of view. In the course of this work, my subject has often led me to speak of the Indians and the Negroes, but I have never been able to stop in order to show what place these two races occupy in the midst of the democratic people whom I was engaged in describing. I have mentioned in what spirit and according to what laws the Anglo-American Union was formed, but I could only glance at the dangers which menaced that confederation whilst it was equally impossible for me to give a detailed account of its chances of duration independently of its laws and manners. When speaking of the United Republican States, I hazarded no conjectures upon the permanence of Republican forms in the New World, and when making frequent allusions to the commercial activity which reigns in the Union, I was unable to inquire into the future condition of the Americans as a commercial people. These topics are collaterally connected with my subject without forming a part of it. They are American without being democratic, and to portray democracy has been my principal aim. It was therefore necessary to postpone these questions, which I now take up as the proper termination of my work. The territory now occupied or claimed by the American Union spreads from the shores of the Atlantic to those of the Pacific Ocean. On the east and west, its limits are those of the continent itself. On the south it advances nearly to the tropic, and it extends upward to the icy regions of the north. The human beings who are scattered over this place do not form, as in Europe, so many branches of the same stock. Three races, naturally distinct, and I might almost say hostile to each other, are discoverable amongst them at first glance. Almost insurmountable barriers have been raised between them by education and by law, as well as by their origin and outward characteristics but fortune has brought them together on the same soil, where although they are mixed, they do not amalgamate, and each race fulfils its destiny apart. Among these widely differing families of men, the first which attracts attention, the superior in intelligence, in power and in enjoyment, is the white or European, the man preeminent, and in subordinate grades, the Negro and the Indian. These two unhappy races have nothing in common, neither birth, nor features, nor language, nor habits. Their only resemblance lies in their misfortunes. Both of them occupy an inferior rank in the country they inhabit. Both suffer from tyranny, and if their wrongs are not the same, they originate at any rate with the same authors. If we reason from what passes in the world, we should almost say that the European is to the other races of mankind what man is to the lower animals. He makes them subservient to his use, and when he cannot subdue, he destroys them. Oppression has, at one stroke, deprived the descendants of the Africans of almost all the privileges of humanity. The Negro of the United States has lost all remembrance of his country. The language which his forefathers spoke was never heard around him. 
he abjured their religion and forgot their customs when he ceased to belong to Africa without acquiring any claim to European privileges. But he remains halfway between the two communities, sold by the one, repulsed by the other, finding not a spot in the universe to call by the name of country except the faint image of a home which the shelter of his master's roof affords. The Negro has no family. Woman is merely the temporary companion of his pleasures, and his children are upon an equality with him from the moment of their birth. I might call it a proof of God's mercy or a visitation of his wrath that man in certain states appears to be insensible to his extreme wretchedness, and almost affects with a depraved taste the cause of his misfortunes. The negro who is plunged in this abyss of evil scarcely feels his own calamitous situation. Violence made him a slave, and the habit of servitude gives him the thoughts and desires of the slave. He admires his tyrants more than he hates them, and finds his joy and his pride in the servile imitation of those who oppress him. His understanding is degraded to the level of his soul. The negro enters upon slavery as soon as he is born, nay, he may have been purchased in the womb, and have begun his slavery before he began his existence. Equally devoid of wants and of enjoyment, and useless to himself, he learns with his first notions of existence that he is the property of another, he has an interest in preserving his life, and that the care of it does not devolve upon himself. Even the power of thought appears to him a useless gift of providence, and he quietly enjoys the privileges of his debasement. If he becomes free, independence is often felt by him to be a heavier burden than slavery, for having learned in the course of his life to submit to everything except reason, he is too much unacquainted with her dictates to obey them. A thousand new desires beset him, and he is destitute of the knowledge and energy necessary to resist them. These are masters which it is necessary to contend with, and he has learnt only to submit and obey. In short, he sinks to such a depth of wretchedness that while servitude brutalises, liberty destroys him. Oppression has been no less fatal to the Indian than to the Negro race, but its effects are different. Before the arrival of white men in the New World, the inhabitants of North America live quietly in their woods, enduring the vicissitudes and practising the virtues and vices common to savage nations. The Europeans, having dispersed the Indian tribes and driven them into the deserts, condemned them to a wandering life full of inexpressible sufferings. Savage nations are only controlled by opinion and by custom. When the North American Indians had lost the sentiment of attachment to their country, when their families were dispersed, their traditions obscured, and the chain of their recollections broken, when all their habits were changed and their wants increased beyond measure, European tyranny rendered them more disorderly and less civilised than they were before. The moral and physical condition of these tribes continually grew worse, and they became more barbarous as they became more wretched. Nevertheless, the Europeans have not been able to metamorphose the character of the Indians, and though they have power to destroy them, they have never been able to make them submit to the rules of civilised society. The lot of the Negro is placed on the extreme limit of servitude, while that of the Indian lies in the utmost verge of liberty, and slavery does not produce more fatal effects upon the first than independence upon the second. The Negro has lost all property in his own person, and he cannot dispose of his existence without committing a sort of fraud, but the savage is his own master as soon as he is able to act. Parental authority is scarcely known to him. He has never bent his will to that of any of his kind, nor learned the difference between voluntary obedience and a shameful subjection, and the very name of law is unknown to him. 
To be free with him signifies to escape from all the shackles of society. As he delights in this barbarous independence and would rather perish than sacrifice the least of it, civilization has little power over him. The Negro makes a thousand fruitless efforts to insinuate himself amongst men who repulse him. He conforms to the taste of his oppressors, adopts their opinions, and hopes by imitating them to form a part of their community. Having been told from infancy that his race is naturally inferior to that of the whites, he assents to the proposition and is ashamed of his own nature. In each of his features he discovers a trace of slavery, and if it were in his power he would willingly rid himself of everything that makes him what he is. The Indian, on the contrary, has his imagination inflated with the pretended nobility of his origin, and lives and dies in the midst of these dreams of pride. Far from desiring to conform his habits to ours, he loves his savage life as the distinguishing mark of his race, and he repels every advance to civilization, less perhaps from the hatred which he entertains for it, than from a dread of resembling the Europeans. While he has nothing to oppose to our perfections in the arts but the resources of the desert, to our tactics nothing but undisciplined courage, whilst our well-digested plans are met by the spontaneous instincts of savage life, who can wonder if he fails in this unequal contest? The Negro, who earnestly desires to mingle his race with that of the European, cannot affect it, while the Indian, who might succeed to a certain extent, disdains to make the attempt. The servility of one dooms him to slavery, the pride of the other to death. I remember that while I was travelling through the forests which still cover the state of Alabama, I arrived one day at the log house of a pioneer. I did not wish to penetrate into the dwelling of the American, but retired to rest myself for a while in the margin of a spring, which was not far off in the woods. While I was in this place, which was in the neighbourhood of the Creek Territory, an Indian woman appeared, followed by a negress, and holding by the hand a little white girl of five or six years old, whom I took to be the daughter of the pioneer. A sort of barbarous luxury set off the costume of the Indian. Rings of metal were hanging from her nostrils and ears. Her hair was adorned with glass beads, fell loosely upon her shoulders. And I saw that she was not married, for she still wore that necklace of shells which the bride always deposits on the nuptial couch. The negress was clad in squalid European garments. They all three came and seated themselves upon the banks of the fountain. And the young Indian, taking the child in her arms, lavished upon her such fond caresses as mothers give, while the negress endeavoured, by various little artifices, to attract the attention of the young creole. The child displayed in her slightest gestures a consciousness of superiority, which formed a strange contrast with her infantine weakness, as if she received the attention of her companions with a sort of condescension. The negress was seated on the ground before her mistress, watching her smallest desires, and apparently divided between strong affection for the child and servile fear. Whilst the savage displayed in the midst of her tenderness an air of freedom and of pride which was almost ferocious. I had approached the group and I contemplated them in silence, but my curiosity was probably displeasing to the Indian woman, for she suddenly rose, pushed the child roughly from her, and giving me an angry look, plunged into the thicket. I had often chanced to see individuals met together in the same place who belonged to the three races of men which people North America. I perceived from many different results the preponderance of the whites. But in the picture which I have just been describing, there was something peculiarly touching. A bond of affection here united the oppressors with the oppressed, 
and the effort of nature to bring them together rendered still more striking the immense distance placed between them by prejudice and by law. The present and probable future condition of the Indian tribes which inhabit the territory possessed by the Union. Gradual disappearance of the native tribes, manner in which it takes place, miseries accompanying the forced migrations of the Indians. The savages of North America had only two ways of escaping destruction, war or civilization. They are no longer able to make war. Reasons why they refused to become civilized when it was in their power, and why they cannot become so now that they desire it. Instance of the Creeks and Cherokees, policy of the particular states towards these Indians, policy of the federal government. None of the Indian tribes which have formerly inhabited the territory of New England, the Narragansetts, the Mohicans, the Peacocks, have any existence but in the recollection of man. The Lenaps who received William Penn a hundred and fifty years ago upon the banks of the Delaware have disappeared, and I myself met with the last of the Iroquois, who were begging alms. The nations I have mentioned formerly covered the county to the sea coast, but a traveller at the present day must penetrate more than a hundred leagues into the interior of the continent to find an Indian. Not only have these wild tribes receded, but they are destroyed, and as they give way or perish, an immense and increasing people fills their place. There is no instance upon record of so prodigious a growth or so rapid a destruction. The manner in which the latter change takes place is not difficult to describe. When the Indians were the sole inhabitants of the wilds from whence they have since been expelled, their wants were few. Their arms were of their own manufacture, their only drink was the water of the brook, and their clothes consisted of the skins of animals whose flesh furnished them with food. The Europeans introduced amongst the savages of North America firearms, ardent spirits and iron. They taught them to exchange for manufactured stuffs the rough garments which had previously satisfied their untutored simplicity. Having acquired new taste without the arts by which they could be gratified, the Indians were obliged to have recourse to the workmanship of the whites. But in return for their productions, the savage had nothing to offer except the rich furs which still abounded in his woods. Hence the chase became necessary, not merely to provide for his subsistence, but in order to procure the only objects of barter which he could furnish to Europe. Whilst the wants of the natives were thus increasing, their resources continued to diminish. The Indians will not live as Europeans live, and yet they can neither subsist without them, nor exactly after the fashion of their fathers. This is demonstrated by a fact which I likewise give upon official authority. Some Indians of a tribe on the banks of Lake Superior had killed a European. The American government interdicted all traffic with the tribe to which the guilty parties belonged until they were delivered up to justice. This measure had the desired effect. From the moment when a European settlement is formed in the neighbourhood of the territory occupied by the Indians, the beasts of chase take the alarm. Thousands of savages wandering in the forests and destitute of any fixed dwelling did not disturb them. But as soon as the continuous sounds of European labour are heard in their neighbourhood, they begin to flee away and retire to the west, where their instinct teaches them that they will find deserts of immeasurable extent. The buffalo is constantly receding, say Messrs. Clark and Cass in their report of the year 1829. A few years since they approached the base of the Alleny, and a few years hence they may even be rare upon the immense plains which extend to the base of the Rocky Mountains. 
I have been assured that this effect of the approach of the whites is often felt at 200 leagues distance from their frontier. Their influence is thus exerted over tribes whose name is unknown to them, and who suffer the evils of usurpation long before they are acquainted with the authors of their distress. Bold adventurers soon penetrate into the country the Indians have deserted, and when they have advanced about 15 or 20 leagues from the extreme frontiers of the whites, they begin to build habitations for civilized beings in the midst of the wilderness. This is done without difficulty, as the territory of a hunting nation is ill-defined. It is the common property of the tribe and belongs to no one in particular, so the individual interests are not concerned in the protection of any part. A few European families settled in different situations at a considerable distance from each other soon drive away the wild animals which remain between their places of abode. The Indians who have previously lived in a sort of abundance then find it difficult to subsist and still more difficult to procure the articles of barter which they stand in need of. To drive away their game is to deprive them of the means of existence, as effectually as if the fields of our agriculturists were stricken with barrenness, and they are reduced like famished wolves to prowl through the forsaken woods in quest of prey. Their instinctive love of their country attaches them to the soil which gave them birth, even after it has ceased to yield anything but misery and death. At length they are compelled to acquiesce, and to depart they follow the traces of the elk, the buffalo and the beaver, and are guided by these wild animals in the choice of their future country. Properly speaking, therefore, it is not the Europeans who drive away the native inhabitants of America, it is famine which compels them to recede, a happy distinction which had escaped the causes of former times, and for which we are indebted to modern discovery. The ejectment of the Indians very often takes place at the present day in a regular and, as it were, legal manner. When the European population begins to approach the limit of the desert inhabited by a savage tribe, the government of the United States usually dispatches envoys to them, who assemble the Indians in a large plain, and having first eaten and drunk with them, accost them in the following manner. What have you to do in the land of your fathers? Before long, you must dig up their bones in order to live. In what respect is the country you inhabit better than another? Are there no woods, marshes or prairies except where you dwell? And can you live nowhere but under your own sun? Beyond those mountains which you see at the horizon, beyond the lake which binds your territory in the west, there lie vast countries where beasts of chase are found in great abundance. Sell your lands to us and go to live happily in these solitudes. After holding this language, they spread before the eyes of the Indians firearms, woolen garments, kegs of brandy, glass necklaces, bracelets of tinsel, earrings and looking glasses. If, when they have beheld all these riches, they still hesitate, it is insinuated that they have not the means of refusing their required consent, and that the government itself will not long have the power of protecting them in their rights. What are they to do? Half convinced and half compelled, they go to inhabit new deserts, where the importunate whites will not let them remain ten years in tranquillity. In this manner the Americans obtain, at a very low price, whole provinces, whilst the riches which the riches of Europe could not purchase. The Indians, says the report, reached the treaty ground poor and almost naked. Large quantities of goods are taken there by the traders and are seen and examined by the Indians. The women and children become importunate to have their wants supplied, and their influence is soon exerted to induce a sale. Their improvidence is habitual and unconquerable. 
The gratification of his immediate wants and desires is the ruling passion of an Indian. The expectation of future advantages seldom produces much effect. The experience of the past is lost and the prospects of the future disregarded. It would be utterly hopeless to demand a cessation of land unless the means were at hand of gratifying their immediate wants. And when their condition and circumstances are fairly considered, it ought not to surprise us that they are so anxious to relieve themselves. End of chapter 18 of Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville